This is Dropout Nation. I'm Rashawn Biddle. Today on the road, DeRay McKesson and other reformers talk about organizing for transforming American public education and the communities in which our children live. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, do teachers voice? Good morning. Good morning. Well, welcome. And yeah, see, folks got their coffee. That's great. You got your minds. That's even better. You have your hearts. That is absolutely awesome. And I got to tell you, thank you for being here this morning. More importantly, thank you for your dedication to building brighter futures for all of our children and for embracing John Taylor Gatto's admonition to all of us that we should nurture the geniuses within our children. One of the ways to do that is by organizing. This morning, these warriors, these champions for transforming lives and communities they are going to teach you how to take your, your individual power, your personal power, I would call it your Fannie Lou Hamer power, and build it into a collective power that transforms communities and transforms the lives of children. Also, they will teach you how to take the relationships you have and the relationships that you are building each and every day in the classroom, outside of it, and build it into organizing. And finally, they're going to teach you how to organize for power in various different ways, from parent power to power and Black Lives Matter to student power. Yes, students do matter. We tend to forget that in this business, unfortunately. So today, we have these four powerful folks. Now, Milagros, I want to make sure I get your name right. Barsayos. 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 My apologies. See, that in, uh, I practice this multiple times. So. It's very good. Yeah, eighth, yeah, my eighth grade Spanish is terrible. <laughs> she is the founder of Rise Colorado, a parent power group that's doing amazing work in that state. Next will come Zeke Berzoff Cohen, who is the founder of Intersection, a student organizing group and also one of two candidates, actually three candidates for public office on the stage this morning. Also, we have, we have Jonathan Mansouri, who works for LEE, Leadership for Educational Equity. 
He works with your fellow alumni on organizing and transforming communities and working with communities to make that happen. And finally, now, I don't need to introduce this guy. You, you know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, then you need to go and find out who he is. So, DeRay McKesson, you know who he is. And let me go ahead and move to the first thing that we have to ask. I have to ask all of you right here before we get into all of them presenting. What do you know about organizing? What is organizing to you? Um, anyone can, I mean, let's, anyone can come up and, and explain it. What do you think organizing means to you? Organizing is when you get, um, like people together to like work towards a common goal. Um, organizing is when you get people together to work towards a common goal. Like legislating or whatever. All right, cool. Cool. It's also a philosophy about the way power works and the way that power should work, being that you use the community organizing model to flip the power structures upside down so that people in a, in a given community are the ones that are doing their own thing rather than somebody advocating on their that's that's a good question. That's those are two good answers, and when you think about that, those two answers and your own personal answers, also think about a time when you witnessed inequity in your classrooms, in your schools, in your communities, and think about whether you felt powerless to change it, and what did it make you want to do? Now, our folks here have seen it, and they've taken action. And Millie, she's going to be the first to tell you about her experience and how she took action. And so. Sure. Um, so, hi everyone, my name is Leandro from Millie Barcayo. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Rise Colorado, as you saw Sherry. Um, so my co-founder, Veronica Palmer, and I started Rise Colorado, um, first and foremost because we saw the power of our own families um, in our education. We were able to obtain the opportunities we did because of sacrifices of members of our own family. So we founded Rise to educate, engage, and empower low-income families and families of color to rise to agents in our public school system for educational equity. Um, and at the heart of our work, our theory of change, is that when we look at successful social justice movements in the history of this country, we see that there was always landmark policy that was critical to change, and there were always champions for that policy. But transformational systemic change did not happen in any of those movements until those most impacted by a given injustice were empowered to rise up and demand change. <clears throat> so we believe that if we want to close the opportunity gap and achieve educational equity, we have to empower our communities, low-income communities, communities of color most impacted by the opportunity gap to lead this work. Um, the, you know, when we think about um, <clears throat> what's happening right now in education, um, as a Latina, um, this work is deeply personal for me. Um, the opportunity gap impacted part of my life. 
Um, and so at the end of the day, I don't get to go home and shrug my shoulders and say, oh well, I tried to help those people. These are my people. This is my community. This is the life and death of my community and of other communities of color. Um, and when we talk about community, community engagement is like the hottest, sexiest buzzword, especially family engagement and education right now. Um, but I do not think that at the end of the day, our system leaders are actually ready for enlightened, engaged communities. Um, how many people actually want enlightened, engaged communities? The reality is, is what engaged communities take, it takes <clears throat> for us to not only be willing to share power with people who are impacted by injustice, but we have to be able to take a step back and know when it's not our turn to lead, and know when we have to give up power. So for me, I am a Latina, sure, but I'm educated. I'm not the most impacted by the opportunity gap. Now, our members at RISE lead our work because they are the most impacted. For all of us, we have to think about how are we willing to share and give up power to put our communities at the forefront of this movement. Now, Zeke. What is your what is your story? Sure. So I was a teacher in West Baltimore, uh, in Sandtown, Winchester, which has recently become somewhat infamous. It was where Mr. Freddie Gray um, and his family grew up. Uh, in the Fillmore housing projects with lead paint, uh, with an economy that revolves largely around liquor stores, bail bondsmen, funeral parlors, and heroin, um, and not much else. Um, and that was the neighborhood that my students were walking to school in. Um, the school building that I taught in itself was strangely resemblant to a prison in that the walls were in some places literally crumbling. Um, you had asbestos uh, still in the building. No running water, no heat, so it would get extremely hot during the, or extremely cold during the winter, and no air conditioning, so it would get extremely cold, uh, extremely hot during the summer. And that's what we're sending kids to school. And what message does that send to them? It sends the message that you are not worthy of a decent education. Um, and so part of that experience for me was in some ways recognizing what Millie was saying is that our young people who are so impacted by educational inequity and white supremacy and racism need to be at the forefront of this movement for change. Um, and so the quick story I would tell, a couple years back, we got involved in this effort to pass a three cent bottle tax, right? So this was a tax on me, bottles, um, water bottles, liquor, whatever, uh, that would go directly toward a bond to fix Baltimore City's badly outdated school buildings. And like I said, this was personal for me because I taught in a school that was crumbling. Baltimore has some of the oldest, most ramshackle schools in the state of Maryland and really in the country. 
Um, and so we had gone, our community, our students, the ACLU, the Industrial Areas Foundation group had all gone to Annapolis to say this is unacceptable. We need to improve and renovate our schools. We need better school buildings for our children. This is our future. If you don't invest now, we're going to have big problems down the road. And the legislators said no. Um, they said Baltimore needs to have some skin in the game before we give you any money. We give you too much money as it is. And so we went back and we proposed a three cent bottle to go directly towards school facilities. And then we would put it into a bond and be able to renovate our schools. Right? The problem with it was is that a certain city councilman, Mr. Carl Stokes, who was the head of the Taxation and Finance Committee, was adamantly opposed to the bottle tax. A lot of folks thought that he was being funded in part by the liquor industry, and so he was not into it. And he wasn't gonna let it out of his committee. And so we decided to organize, and to the original question, we got together with all of these groups, the Baltimore Education Coalition, the ACLU, BUILD, um, teachers, parents, and we held a big accountability session. We managed to bring out about 3,000 people together and line up our city council and one by one say to them, will you support the bottle pass? And the first guy, Jim Crack, in the first district said, yes, I will. And all 3,000 people are cheering and they're going nuts and it's the best thing since sliced bread, and it's just wonderful. And they go to the second person, Mr. Brandon Scott. Mr. Brandon Scott, will you support the bottle tax? And he says yes, and everybody's cheering, and it's just wonderful. And they go all the way down the line to Mr. Carl Stokes. They say to Mr. Carl Stokes, will you support the bottle tax? And he takes the mic away from the organizer and says, you've been lied to. This is not about our children. This is going to put businesses out of business. This is a regressive tax. It's no good. It's no good for kids. And the organizer takes the mic back and says, Councilman Stokes, that wasn't the question. The question was, will you support the podcast and get out of your committee? And he takes the mic back and says, your mayor has lied to you. She's manipulating you. This is not about you. And one of my students takes the mic. And she speaks up and she says, Councilman Stokes, you know, I understand that the city is in a budget crisis, but don't balance the budget on the backs of me and my brothers and sisters. And at that point, Councilman Carl Stokes starts to lose it a little bit and starts to sweat and starts to get really visibly uncomfortable. And this whole crowd that had been cheering and laughing and having a wonderful time starts to boo him. And so all of a sudden, he's nervous and he's shaking. And he takes the mic and he says, well, the mayor's lied to you. And, and he just starts looking like a deer caught in headlights. And the media is there. The Baltimore Sun is there. The Baltimore Brew is there. This whole scrum of reporters catch this thing. And the next day, we sit down with him, with one of the organizers from BUILD and one of the organizers from our group, and say to him, Councilman, this is not good for you. He needs to just let this thing go. You know, it's, it's starting to look real bad. And he says, okay, 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 okay. And he lets the bottle tax out of his committee, and it passes in front of the city council, and we go back to Annapolis, and we ended up being able to raise a billion dollars for Baltimore City public school system.
because we all organized together with the ACLU and BUILD and the Intersection and, all, and the Baltimore Education Coalition and all these groups speaking together as one unit. Great. Great. Now, Jonathan, what's your story? Uh, I mean, what I think is interesting is that, you know, as organizers, we're sort of, uh, and that's because Second year in teaching, uh, we can decide to work on it. We're not small campus anyways. Um, the reason why it's important is we got a pretty big grant on campus provided by a local church to get one on one laptop for a student. And the principal comes in and says, Hey, John, that's fine. So, you know, what do you want to do with this money? I say, You know, this is a really good idea, you know, to get one on one laptop for a student. But let's, let's, you know, build a computer science program. And she said, Great, why don't you, you know, fix that and teach them how to code? I don't know how to do it. 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 I don't know how Uh, and we're going to talk a little more today about what is that, but, uh, but ultimately we're going to 
past year, um, we created an initiative with the teachers, partnership community, to make sure that we have a million dollars for, uh, for crossing our And DeRay, you know, what's your story? So on August 16th, I was on my class, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, and I saw Dr. Ferguson, and it was the middle of the night, and I waited until my best friend woke up, and he was in Chicago. I called him, and I said, I'm going to tell you, and he was in the second half, and I just needed to tell somebody, but I didn't really have to, because I was in the middle of the night, and I moved there for a long time, and he was on the edge, and I needed to get back. I couldn't do it, and I was like, I didn't have to be in the
Everything that everyone said here has raised a, a lot of questions, and I'm going to actually start with. I'm going to start with you, Millie, because I'm going to tell you. I'm going to, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was this whole idea of leaders don't want engaged communities, which I would dare say that's the nicest word for that. <laughs> but you know, the question I have to ask, and there are going to be different models for everyone, but what? For you and for your work, what does engaged communities look like? What does parent power? And I, I hate the word, I hate the word engagement. I'm going to tell you right now, engagement is a public education word that means nothing but parents do what the teachers and school leaders tell them to do. And no, I'm not. Don't. This is not against teachers. And it's not against school leaders, but I'm going to be really honest. Parents are have their own intelligence, and they know what they they have an idea of what they need for their kids. They don't know everything, but they know enough. And if you just tell me engagement, what that means is you want them to participate in a bake sale, and if that's what you want for your parents, I'm going to tell you. 
don't, uh, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear about your bake sale today or do, work, do the kids' homework. That, don't talk to me about that. But what does parent power, what does community power sure. look for you? Um, so in our work at RISE, we are lucky every day to see examples of families who are fighting for their voices to be heard for those wins that DeRay was talking about. And so one leader um, who comes to mind for me when I think about that question is Diana. Um, so Diana came to the U.S. from Mexico when she was in high school, and she enrolled and graduated from Aurora Central High School in Aurora Public Schools where we work. Um, she had dreams of continuing her education, but wasn't able to due to the realities of her family circumstances. Um, and she's lived in Aurora since she came to the States. Now she has two kids, um, Miranda, who's five, she's a preschooler in Aurora Public Schools, and Sebastian, who's one. Um, I, met Miranda, or I met Diana, sorry, because she came to a Parent Opportunity Gap Night workshop run by RISE at Miranda's school, um, and I went to her house to do a one-on-one -on -one with her. Um, she was pleasant, she was warm, she was welcoming. She answered my questions briefly, but she really didn't have a problem with the school system. When I started talking to her, she, uh, Diana, or Miranda had been in school two months, I think, at that point, and she frankly was just glad to get um, an ECEC in a district that only provides one-third of kids um, in the district with ECE. Uh, but as we got to talking a little bit more, she shared with me that the real reason that she wanted to meet with me and to get more involved with RISE beyond the workshop we did in the school was because she knew the education that she received at Central hadn't prepared for her, for her for success. And right now, Aurora Central is the largest high school in Aurora Public, in the state of Colorado um, to be on the watch list to go into state turnaround next year if student achievement doesn't improve, um, which has never happened in our state. So it's still not making the cut. And she wants different for Miranda and Sebastián. Um, and so Diana got involved with our first organizing campaign of families. We pulled together our first coalition of ECE families from two schools um, who wanted to come together around an issue of academic achievement. So the way our model works is we don't have policy planes, we don't have preconceived issues. Families pick the problems they see in our school systems and based on the solutions they want to see make an issue cut. So our ECE coalition was very concerned about the fact that in our district we only see um, half day preschool uh, four days a week, which totals to 11 hours of instruction for their kids. And they weren't getting any resources or homework to support learning at home. And they were feeling like our kids aren't going to be kindergarten ready. All of them had experienced different different times asking for resources and not getting them. And so they came together with three goals uh, around their campaign. They called it the homework campaign. The first was to um, get developmentally appropriate resources to support their kids over the summer. This was last school year. To prevent a summer slide. The second was to get consistent resources through this school year. And the third was to get a district policy change because they knew their kids are only at these ECE centers for two years. Um, they want families who are coming behind them to actually have access to those same resources as well. Um, so Diana actually took the lead um, at Jamaica Child Development Center, which is one of the two schools in the coalition. And she first went to talk to Miranda's teacher about receiving homework. When she wasn't able to get the resources she wanted um, to support Miranda's learning at home, she recruited other families to go with her to meet with the school leader and talk about the importance of engaging families in their children's education and providing them resources, viewing them as partners, and showing them how to use those resources at home to 
support student learning when the district isn't providing full day preschool. Um, and so in that process, um, she went to the school, had them set up meetings um, to talk about what those resources are actually going to look like, ran two rounds of feedback with the school, uh, two, two feedback meetings, because the resources they were providing were not rigorous enough. Um, and was the first one to win on the homework issue. And so her win inspired the families from the second school. Um, and they also won the homework campaign at their school. And our families actually won at a third school because they were serving on a district committee um, where the school leader of the third uh, ECE center in our district was working. So with the work that Deanna did with four other families led to um, the families of 700 ECE students in our district receiving resources for their students because she wanted to see a change not just for Mira and then Sebastian, for all the kids in our district. Um, and she continues to serve as a leader on that committee. The picture up on the screen right now is actually her um, at a, a recent press conference we did on a report we put out in coalition with 16 other organizations on the status of education in our district and the recommendations mm -hmm. that our families are recommending for the district to turn student achievement around. And she's actually here today speaking at another session. Um, wow. I wish you could all hear her, but you're here with me. Um, about her incredible work. So uh, I think of Deanna, that is what is possible when our communities lead. Like you were saying, our communities know they have solutions. Um, and that's what, that, that change is what's possible when we empower them to lead. That's, um, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, amazing. And you know, Zeke, uh, what, I have to ask the question because, you know, student organizing, I mean, what does that look like? What does it really look like to grab students and mobilize them into action? Yeah, so in that work, I think a lot about this idea of intersectionality, which is part baked into the title of our program. Um, and it's the idea, to me, it's the idea that um, while we all come from different places and may have experienced different traumas, we're all connected by a common humanity and that our stories and our lives intersect, right? And so as a Jewish person growing up, um, my grandparents, uh, I lost about half of my family in the Holocaust. So that was very hard baked into my identity growing up. My mom would always tell stories and we would read Night by Elie Wiesel and we would sort of you know, think about what it means to be a Jewish American. Um, as an educator teaching in Baltimore and then engaging in student leadership, part of the thing for me was really learning how to listen and understand other people who've had a very different struggle and challenge. Um, and teaching them that for them to be effective, teaching our youth that for them to be effective, they also need to listen and understand different people's struggles. So for me, I think about a couple of years ago, we were thinking about getting involved in the DREAM Act. Um, which, simply put, was a law to give undocumented kids in Maryland the ability to go to a Maryland State College at an in-state tuition rate. Um, and at this point, our group, the intersection, was all African-American. They were all from Baltimore. So they were all native to Baltimore. Um, and initially, 
my students had some real resistance to getting involved with the DREAM Act. Um, you know, like other Americans, they've been fed this idea that those people are coming here to take our jobs, they don't belong here, they don't, this, this is a tax break that they're getting, it's unfair, it's going to take something away from us. Um, that was kind of the preconception that a lot of our students brought. And what changed the conversation, what changed the dialogue for us is that we sat down with a group of dreamers and we listened to the stories of JJ and Eves and Mariella and these folks that had come from El Salvador and Ecuador and India and all these different places. And what our students at the intersection realized is that these kids are just like us. You know, they've experienced what it is to grow up in poverty. Often they've experienced what it is to live in a single or no parent home. They've had all these challenges that we've had, and yet they have this additional barrier of being undocumented and having to live their lives in the shadows and not being able to go to college because before the DREAM Act, for so many undocumented kids, they were unable to afford tuition. You couldn't get grants, you couldn't get loans, so it was a true barrier. And for our students, I remember there was like this light bulb moment where they saw this commonality, this intersectionality. They saw these dreamers as actually being fully realized human beings with stories of their own. And so we got fired up, we got charged with this thing about even though this struggle isn't going to directly impact us because we all were born in the United States, we are still going to be a voice in this movement. We're not going to be the leading voice because undocumented folks need to speak for themselves, but we are going to be a voice that advocates alongside our undocumented brothers and sisters. And I remember one of my most sort of challenging young men who had all sorts of personal issues in his life really took this thing on. And he spoke out on the news, on TV. He knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors. And, you know, this was a kid that teachers were constantly thrown out of their class, that was having all these issues within his family. This was the kid that no one wanted to deal with. And here he was, out there, banging on doors, advocating for the DREAM Act. And so, the day of the referendum, um, this was a vote that Maryland did to decide whether we wanted the DREAM Act or not. I was standing at this polling station in southeast Baltimore, and I'm wearing my intersection shirt. And this older African-American woman comes up to me, and you know, we're, we're handing out stuff, we're passing out flyers for the DREAM Act, and this older African-American woman comes up to me, and she's looking at my shirt, she's looking at the intersection shirt, and she's like, don't I know you from somewhere? And I was like, I don't know, did you maybe meet one of my students? We're a youth leadership and organizing group, they've been knocking on doors all over the city. And she goes, oh yeah, 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 that, that, that young man with the, with the dress, right? That, that young man who came to my door. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's Antonio, he's, he, that's my man, he's, he's been doing this work. And she looks at me, and she actually starts to cry. I'm like, oh my 
what did Antonio do this time? Like, uh, and I'm like, ma'am, I'm really sorry. Like, I know he's a little rough around the edges. Like, we're working on it. You know, he's got, he's got a good heart and all this other stuff. And she stops me right in the middle of my spiel. And she says, no, you don't understand. She says, I grew up in Selma, and my father died thinking that black people in this country would never be able to vote. And yet here, there's a black man in the White House and a black boy out here trying to give other people their rights. It's a beautiful country. Amazing. And in the end, the DREAM Act passed overwhelmingly with support from Baltimore City. And it was amazing to see our young people play a role in that fight. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I got to tell you, I mean, it is amazing to see when kids, children, young men, young women actually stand up and do things. I mean, it makes me wish at times that I was able to do that when I was younger. Uh, otherwise, I'd be somewhere else. But, you know, speaking of some of doing something amazing. Now, Jonathan, you happen to have been in L.A. Um, working with Steve Barr and Green Dot, yeah. which that's an amazing story. I actually had spent some time in L.A. Actually, when Steve actually started his first, the first two or three schools. And I'm going to guess you're talking the work with Lock High and and that organizing. I mean, was that a, can you tell me about that moment and how that really kind of cemented, maybe shaped your thinking about organizing? Yeah, so after uh, I started getting angry about organizing, I wanted to explore organizing. So after, you know, a few years I joined, we got to school to become Because what, what that taught me and the, the framework that I had when I was working there was that I started believing that communities actually have the answers. I think the way that you see organizing our communities and the, the way that you approach it. Um, so what I joined about was when we had this, um, we had this vision, we had a couple of questions. One, um, what would engage to the country we have as people? What would parent engage in the How schools would start to what would it mean if parents uh, recognize the power they have in these? You know, what would, uh, what, what would it mean to actually have a set of So, over the course of the year, we want to say, I want to try this project, I want to see, you know, what does the parents have to train, what would it mean to learn at the front of it? And our vision in the end is we have to pitch for ourselves. Could we get these parents in front of all the officials in America? So what we started to do was, you know, only about four hours before we had to start, and we started having all of our parents. We started having coordinated like school festivals, like school festivals in South Los Angeles, to become the organizing center of the school fest, and we had all these philosophies over the course of the year. With that course of the year as well, we created something called the American Institute, and in that society, we just get our parents to become organized themselves. So we're just Uh, so, initially in mind, 
there's about next door on the sidewalk. Those teachers just stuck in on the school sidewalk next door, then it wasn't getting better. This is an issue. This is something that you know, was directly impacting the school because the students across the country, they're running out of school, they're walking to school, they're walking back home, and they're not going to That's not something we have about anyone else in the city. And a lot of people didn't think this was an issue. It's not open to see it. Public officials didn't really care about it. They were really talking about it, but the parents cared about it. And that was the issue for us. Um, so fast forward a year, we started organizing three thousand parents. Three uh, of these three of one on one, so how do you care for And I mean, now, direct. I got to ask this question, um, and I think about this from you know, is pointing out you know the Steve Barr School, which was part of it. Is you know, if you're going to go into communities, you have to listen to them. You have to actually be engaged with them and be engaged in their their own concerns. You know, the other side of it, as you mentioned, is you don't need to be, and you mentioned this, you don't need to actually be. This idea of being close to the, if you're poor, then you know more about this and you're more authentic than others. I mean, from my, the question I have to ask is, I mean, what, for the folks who are coming in, the folks in this audience, I mean, when they're coming in, what do they have to do in terms of being, what does authentic look like? I mean, this is, I mean, I, because I think people overuse that term, and I'm honest when I say it, authentic everything becomes inauthentic. What does that authenticity really look like? In a Proximity is also important. Like, how, how close are we going to the same? We don't question. I'm telling 
Ya. start getting to the question and answer portion of this of this session and so I want you to start thinking about your questions I'm going to ask one more but then I'm going to open the floor because I think it's important for you to have a conversation with these these warriors you have to have that conversation but you know the question that I have to ask and this is a question that comes in part because three of you are actually running for either city council or mayor and and this is even a question for you, Millie, because you know. <laughs> I'm not running. For yeah, I know, but you know, just but but it's a question because I do think this it's it's an important question to ask about, and I call it the position or power question. It's one that was brought up about three years ago by Frederick Haynes, at who was a pastor in Dallas at the Congressional Black Caucus, and he made an, a huge point. That is that Fannie Lou Hamer had no position, but she had a lot of power. The other, the the converse is that you can gain position, you can gain position in systems, and yet find yourself effectively powerless. For everyone on this panel, the question has to be asked, you know, how do you think you're going to be able to balance that? That idea that, okay, you get into a position, but you get elected, you get on a board, but now you have to deal with the relationships and that are part of that. Because after all, these systems exist, they exist to outlast people. 
and they're built upon relationships that last long after people have died. So I have to ask that question. So let's um, start with um, with Jonathan, since you're the one you're running for Fullerton City Council. Am I right about that? Well, what do you, uh, how do you balance that position and power? That is, when you're an activist and organizing, you have a power. You have power. You have your individual power. You have collective power, and you're able to galvanize and mobilize folks. And then you get the position. Well, the position becomes a problem of, are you actually going to continue to be authentic I hate that word, authentic, being true to the people that you're serving, the people that, that the reason why you're, in some ways, why you are in that position in the first place. Yeah, so it's interesting that I was talking about authenticity. When I think about authenticity, you know, it's why I'm here is really just the question. And, you know, organizing in of itself is not authentic. There are a lot of people who organizing is not authentic. There's a lot of people organizing parents who are authentic. There's, there's a lot of people organizing in Los Angeles, you know, because they think they look good, because, you know, in the end, parents are not looking for communities, they're just, you know, organizing something. Um, you know, they're not, you know, they're not going to be recognized at all. It is just inauthentic themselves because they're not doing it for the right reasons. Um, I'm not saying they have the right reasons, I'm not saying any of us for have the right reasons. Um, but I think that's the question I think, you know, the race really asking is like, why are you doing this? Why do you really want to work in this? Um, you know, so when I'm thinking about you know the positions of, of power that you know or of influence that we're seeking, it's about you know really thinking to kind of stretch our conversation. What world do we want? And you know, balancing the world between you know the world that should be and the world that it is, and the tension, tension that we live between those two worlds. Because you know we have to recognize that there is a a uh, imbalance of power between communities, and we have to get that right now. There is an imbalance of power. That there is a private sector, there's a public sector, there's a civic sector, there's an imbalance. There's way too much money involved. There's way too many politicians that are entering because they're not doing the right things. You know, then there's, there's communities that are not organized around power, and there's a lot of organizers that are not doing the right way. So, to answer that question, you know, I think, you know, there, there are some of us here that want to be in positions to make sure that we are advocating for communities, that we're coming to the mindset that we are organizing, and we're that conversation that we're coming into this, and we are running in because we are organizers. And we won't stop thinking that way. Okay. Uh, DeRay, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think for me, I think our framing is important to do this, and will we keep them regardless of what we see in the world? Because I think our audience is going to be done to all the other areas. But the truth, I don't know if you're talking about the same thing that we've done in the past few years. And I don't know if you're talking about the truth, and I don't know if you're talking about the truth. The second is that I just think that people don't know. Yeah, it's a medium-sized hour. I said, 10,000 times at this point. 
to this question is a little bit easier for me to put out there because I'm not running. I'm not going to be in a position. I'm going to retain my power as an organizer, um, as you were saying. But I think um, when I think about this question in the context of myself, personally, my leadership at RISE, 
um, my capacity as a TFA core member and like the, the many parts of my identity. I think for us in our work, we're constantly analyzing what is our social capital in any given situation. Um, so as an educated woman of color, I have social capital in certain situations um, that I can use to lift up the voices of other people. Um, and then there are situations in which I don't have social capital. Um, and I need people to use their social capital to support my voice to be taken seriously or to be lifted up. Um, I think when I think about an organization like Teach for America, obviously the core is diversifying a lot, um, but the reality is the majority of our organization does not look like the communities that we serve. Um, and I think for me, working to like constantly analyze my social capital and recognize that it is different in different situations is the way that I work to help my allies see that like that's something that we as allies should be doing um, for the different movements that we want to support and, and, and be part of um, to, to create the change that we want to see is like consistently analyzing our social capital to say like what is our power in this one situation in this one scenario and like how can we use it and when do we need to ask other people to leverage their power for us um, again that's a lot easier for me to do and actually act on because I won't be serving <clears throat> sorry in elected office um, but I guess that's kind of my my roundabout answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, but it also applies even within within institutions. I mean, long-standing institutions are, you know, there is, you may get a position, and those institutions exist for the same reason governments exist to outlast people. Mm -hmm. So it's a good good you know good answer to uh, to have. What do you think, Zeke? Um, so when I decided to run for city council, oddly enough, New York Times did not come to do a front page story. <laughs> I was lucky to get an interview in the Fells Point Bugle. <laughs> but um, no, it's a, it's a really important question uh, and one that I think all of us in this room should constantly ask of ourselves and challenge ourselves. Um, and just the way Millie was talking about, um, in, in each situation, you have a different amount of power. Uh, the district that I'm running in, it's Southeast Baltimore. It's a really interesting area. It's diverse, but it's also where a lot of the development and the sort of moneyed interests have poured into over the last couple of years. So you've got part of the Inner Harbor, this area of Harbor East, um, and frankly, it, it comprises of primarily white Baltimore in a city that is primarily black. Um, so the interesting thing for the first district was even though Baltimore swings like 10 to 1 Democrat to Republican, the constituents in the first district actually voted for Larry Hogan, our Republican governor, in the last gubernatorial race. And when I would knock doors, when I've been knocking doors in the first district, and my, you know, so like Ray said, part of my thing is really about listening and engaging with people that I don't necessarily agree with. And what I would hear a lot from folks is these two ideas. One is that I want more parking. 
two is that I want you to kill the red line, which was this east-west $3 billion rail project that would have connected these disparate parts of Baltimore, would have connected black and white Baltimore, would have provided access to jobs, would have opened up our city and our economy in a very real way. And when we think about all these issues with education and all the rest, I've learned that transit and people's ability to get to work and to get to school is actually really central to that question, right? So people would say to me, I want more parking and I don't want the red line. And in some ways, those two thoughts are sort of disconnected, right? If you want more parking, then you want more people taking public transit. You want to open the city up. Um, and unfortunately, behind that idea of I don't want the red lines is I don't want people from West Baltimore coming into my neighborhood. That's not everybody, but that's some folks. Right? And so part of the job for me is to convince people that it is in our mutual self-interest to open ourselves up, to become a less segregated city, because Baltimore was a pioneer in segregation and redlining and blockbusting and all these mechanisms that were used to keep our communities separate. And the result has been 344 murders last year. The result is a broken transit system, a broken police department, a broken school system, institutions that are fundamentally broken. And so the idea behind my campaign is that we're all served by having a more open, honest community. And that's not necessarily popular with everyone. And so the quick story I'll tell before I get off the mic, one of the things we decided to do, so like I said, the district is very diverse. Um, you've got growing Hispanic population. You've got a lot of white folks, um, less black folks. But there's this one area in our city, um, and in our district, that is very poor. You've got kind of working white, white, um, working class poor neighborhoods, and then you've got a housing project, all black, and suffers from the same ills as anywhere else in West Baltimore. Lead paint, um, no access to transit, no jobs, all the rest. Right? One of the things that goes on in O'Donnell Heights is that people don't vote. Right? And so, one of the things I said with the campaign is, look, this can't just be about representing our affluent areas in the district. We have to also talk and engage with people living in O'Donnell Heights, and Grayson Park, and Groening Manor, some of the tougher areas in the first district. And my campaign advisor was like, don't do that. Don't buy that. Folks don't vote, they're not gonna vote for you, right? Voting is one of these very predictive things. We know that when people vote frequently, they vote all the time, and so you literally, when you decide to do this, you get a big list of what's called super voters, and it's everybody that votes consistently, and that's the people you're supposed to talk to. Don't worry about anybody else. Right? And so it's one of these contradictory things where if you believe that democracy is about bringing more voices into the conversation, how do you just talk to the people that are already in the conversation? And so my pushback was, look, this is about, fundamentally, 
if I don't go do voter registration in O'Donnell Heights, then I don't deserve to be councilman for the first district of Baltimore City. And so we did. And we went in there and we had this very frank conversation. These five women sat around in a circle. They're sort of the big machers, that's a Yiddish word. They're the big machers. They're like the women that, um, if you want to do something in O'Donnell Heights, you need to talk to them first, right? One of the things they said, um, Ms. Broadway said to me was, look, there's a reason why no one in here votes, right? Because I was asking them, you know, how can we get more people Involved. How many of you have more people in this process? So there's a reason why people here don't vote, and it's because every four or five years, someone who looks like you comes into our community, makes a bunch of promises, tells us stuff that sounds appealing, and then we don't see them ever again until four years later. Right? And one of the things in this project was, in the housing project, was that they cut the project into two parts. They're gonna do a redevelopment. They're gonna try and create mixed income housing. But part of the deal with this redevelopment was that O'Donnell Heights was supposed to get a public park. There's no green space over there. And I sat in on a community meeting three weeks ago before this registration drive where the housing department came out to O'Donnell Heights and said, look, we know we promised you guys a park, but bad news. City ran out of money. You know, we, we just, we can't do it, not this time. Maybe maybe next cycle, you know, the city will get some more money, but that park we promised, it's off the table. And that is the civic death cycle that we're in, is that people make commitments, people make promises, and they don't live up to them. And as a result, people don't vote. They don't participate because they don't see their vote as mattering. Who cares if I elect Zeke or DeRay or any of these folks because it's gonna be the same broken promises again and again and again. And so part of the responsibility that I now have is to be accountable to those five women and all the other folks in O'Donnell Heights and not just represent the wealthier neighborhoods that I know will come out, but also the parts of the district and the parts of the city whose voices don't get heard. Yeah, I think that deserves a round of applause right there. Now, folks, it's time for you. The floor is open. Um, come up and ask some questions. Um, the key word is questions. No commentary. If it's commentary, I'm going to go and step out and directly tell you, what's the question? So let's start with over on this left side. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Leo Alden. I'm from over 2004. So 
So when these comments about um, leaders not being ready for the light community and authenticity, my question to the panelists is how closely does your work align with the mission and practices of CFA? Like, how do you fight your fight knowing that in some ways CFA has respect? Since I'm, I'm, I'm known for volunteering, telling people. So let's start with. Hmm. Okay, John. Okay, Deray, you can do this one. Critique and honest critique, 
Um, when I came in to Baltimore in 2008 to Teach for America, um, one of the challenges that I saw was that there was no, almost no conversation about racism and white supremacy, right? Like it was like weirdly missing from the conversation. You, you have one of the most segregated cities in America, a city built on segregation, and we're talking about achievement gaps and data and this, that, and the other thing, but no one is saying the fundamental problem here is that this is a segregated city where the outcomes for black and white people are dramatically different, right? And there was like no, and, and when anyone would kind of like raise that, it would be, oh, you know, let's get back to the data question, right? Which is really problematic because it becomes this like self-fulfilling, weird, kind of like bizarre conversation that people are having without acknowledging what's really going on in our cities. And so a lot of the work for me, for a bunch of my friends at the time, was to really push on that. And like raise the uncomfortable question about like race and racism need to be central to this conversation. We can't talk about the achievement gap as if it happened in this weird vacuum where black people just all of a sudden, or poor people just all of a sudden aren't learning as good as white people or rich people are. Like that didn't just happen. That happened because folks in power segregated our city, created differential schools, created differential communities, right? Like there's a real history that we need to grapple with, we need to be honest with, we need to read. We need to read books like Not In My Neighborhood, um, which is about housing policy in Baltimore and sort of how it was created and designed. We need to not just come in with our own ideas, but listen. Um, then we need to be honest and humble um, and try to understand this thing in a real way. But I think what I've seen, at least in the last couple years, is there has been progression there has been some reflection. There has been, at least in Baltimore, I see people talking about race. I see people talking about class and gender and identity in a way that puts it at the forefront of the conversation. And so I think all these things are imperfect. And part of the work is to ask the hard questions. Yeah. And to push people to respond and to push people that are in, sitting on panels and doing the work in, in, the, in the positions to really grapple with that. Um, I think what you said is real. Yeah, and let's, you know, we have one, we have another question. Um, all right, yeah, you can come up, you know, well. Okay. Um, hi, uh, my name is we're both organizers um, at our university, and we're joining 2016 for. Um, and Congratulations. So we're both organizing on our campus, and we've done you know, all that good stuff, sit-ins, and release demands, all the um, good stuff that we're doing at our university. However, we do a lot of pushback from the administration and older generations at our university, um, and they kind of uh, degrade our movement by saying things like, oh, they're young, they don't know what they're talking about. We've lived longer, we have all this experience, and how do we, we just want to know in what ways as organizers we can uplift and raise the voices of young people at our university and at our community in general. Um, let's 
Let's see, um, Jonathan. I mean, when I'm looking at people, you know, criticizing them, people criticizing them, organizers, you know, I'm just thinking about systems of oppression. Like, of course they're going to say that. They are, of course they're going to say, you know, students should be protesting, organizers should be organizing, of course they're going to say that, right? Um, but that's the tough work that I do as organizers, as, as you guys, you know, as everyone in this room, as us as a I want to, you know, ask them to continue if you really want to keep, you know, empowering, um, you know, the, the students is that, like, we're all good. You know, just keep the competition that they have to, you know, keep, keep trying to get an analysis and, you know, uh, don't try to let the administration have you. Okay, Millie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we're always going to want to find this time. It's like the work, if you want to be done, if organizers want to be, want to be popular, you know, it's something to not start writing about. Question. say it's not just in politics but also well working with organizations and so Millie I mean what's your I mean what's your perspective about telling doing that um, I think the question you asked is a great one because in organizing what we're constantly doing is assessing relationships assessing our power in those relationships and leveraging that to make things move and happen um, I think you know that's why organizing is so important to me um, like organizing is not an add-on it's not optional it's not a last resort it's not like let's try this after we've tried everything else um, it is how movements happen and so the more that we're able to to actually do that and assess like you know build relationships assess those relationships leverage power the more change we're able to make but I think to your point and uh, you know it's something that I think we all deal with personally regardless of what our public role is it is tiring like it is exhausting to feel like you're constantly on duty to call somebody out and say why did you say that don't say that about this community don't you know like that is exhausting work um, and dealing with 
is that my duty? Is that not my duty? That's a personal question that each of us has to answer. And in what capacity we act on that um, depends completely on each of us. I think one, uh, like give yourself room for self-care. It's okay if you're not, if you can't always step up. Um, in order for like us to have sustainability in our work, we have to make sure that we're aware of when are we going to put ourselves in a situation where we know that's going to be the case and where no things like that are going to happen. Um, and and two, I think like it is hard. Like it's absolutely hard. Like I get red in the face. I get really uncomfortable every time I'm about to do it, even if I'm just going to ask a question. Um, but at the same time. Um, I have to think about, like, in my role, if I'm encouraging families to put themselves on the line for their kids, um, what am I willing to do? Um, and so it, it's, it is difficult because it's a personal question that we have to answer in the public sphere. Um, but it's all about assessing relationships and figuring out what makes the most sense. Well, hey, that's it for the moment. Thank, let's give these warriors a round of applause. a round of applause for being here and my hope is we want to see you doing something um, in the next few years so I want to hear about y'all all right have a good day listen to the dropout nation family podcast including the dropout nation podcast every Sunday also read dropout nation every day for your news and commentary on the reform of American public education and you can read me in the American spectator of the publication this is dropout nation I'm Rashawn Fiddle 